You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. There we go. Of course, I had to do that the second time, right? Anyways, my name is JT Manning, and I work with here with Real Life, and I do a lot of our, our media odds and ends, as well as uh, some of our event planning, kind of work in some of our videos, and uh, that, that's a lot of what I do, and that's kind of my passion, and so that's how they brought me in today to talk about the Media Mountain. I understand if you don't recognize me. I actually don't recognize the front of most of you. I'm usually in the back working with the tech, and so I get to see the back of your heads, which I know very well, but it's finally a pleasure to meet the front of everyone. And uh, this morning we are going to talk about media, which I'm passionate about because I love telling the stories of what God is doing in people's lives. And that's a big part of the way that I get to work in media through the church is telling the story of what God's doing in the church, not only uh, corporately, but also individually in people's lives. And today we're going to be looking at media. Um, media is one of those mountains where uh, sometimes you're really passionate about it, really excited because uh, you, you've gotten to do a lot in it. And like Christer, you kind of grew up in it and it be, just became this part of you. And the more and more you are part of it, the more you knew that it is what you were supposed to be doing. Uh, despite all the outside voices, Christer knew that media was his thing. That's kind of the great part about all these different mountains is you walk out of the room and your hair's on fire because you're ready to go make a difference in the world once you kind of get connected into a message or a, a mountain that's really connecting to you. And there are several other uh, sermons through on our website if you want to go check those out of kind of leading up to now the different mountains that we've already covered and we still have two more mountains left. But looking at media. We're going to be looking at lots of things like sermons and books and podcasts, uh, blogs, TV, social media, radio, newspapers, uh, really even your smartphone, tablet, your computers. Those are all a form of media because media is how you get your information. It's how you take things in. That's kind of the, the three things we're going to be looking at today is what are you taking in? What are you eating when it comes to your media? What is your diet like? And just like real food, when you have your good media and you're sticking to your diet, you feel good. You look good. You know that you're doing what you're supposed to, and it changes the way you feel about yourself and about other people. And that's kind of the second thing we're going to be looking at is, how is it shaping you as you bring these things in? As you take this, these things in, what is it doing inside of you? How is it changing your view of self and view of others? And the last part is today, since media is so available to everybody to create, we're also going to look at how are you serving it up? When someone comes to your house to have their food, when you serve them a meal, what media are you serving them? What are you putting on the table for them so that they can see what you have to say about the world, what God has to say through you about the world? And so those are the three major parts that we're going to look at. And we're going to go ahead and use a massive chunk of scripture. We're going to look at uh, Chronicles to understand media. Fortunately for us, Chronicles was written by the chronicler. If his name was too much more complicated, I would forget it. But as we look at media through Chronicles, the chronicler wrote to the Israelites. And he had all of this input, all of the things he was taking in. So he was taking in Babylon because they were in captivity. And Babylon stands for empire and power and money and taxes and military. But the other thing he had to take in was Torah, Samuel, and Kings. 
And Samuel and Kings is where he spends the majority of his time. That's the majority of what you see when you look at Chronicles is what's written in Samuel and Kings. So he kind of wrote this Cliff Notes version and he was really focusing on what's important as the Israelites go from Babylon back to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild their home city. And so what does God want them to know? He inspired them and sent them, and that's what we have today, is what we know is First and Second Chronicles. And so today, we're going to look at Chronicles, and we're going to start, as all good books, in my opinion, start with a genealogy. And so we have First Chronicles 1. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He starts with Adam because Adam was in the garden. Adam was there on day six when God said, it is very good. And so the chronicler starts his story with, it is very good. He starts with the garden. And just to make sure that everybody knew everything was connected from the garden till the day that they were leaving Babylon, the chronicler spent the next eight chapters filled with more genealogy. And then he gives us the first king of the Jews, Saul. And for Saul, being the first king of the Jews, you'd think he'd have some good things to say to really make a point. And apparently the point he had to make was, let's just skip this guy, because he gave him three genealogies, the death of Saul and the death of his sons. So Saul's dead, and all of his sons are dead, so he has no more, no more of a line, nothing to follow up after. But let's be fair, because at the end of the day, Saul took a turn. He kind of had that thing where he's going to kill his sons, and then the other thing where he's going to kill David. So the chronicler didn't want to focus too much on that. He wanted to keep moving. He wanted to continue with David, which makes sense because he's King David. We're going to give him more than Saul because we're not going to get hung up on Saul's downfalls. We're going to pay attention to David, who's King David. Jerusalem's the city of David. Jesus is the son of David. Acts says that David is a man after God's own heart, and so he gives him 20 chapters. He starts off by talking about David's fighting men. And then he talks about David bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai to say, I'm with you and we're good. The Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem, which is at the center of the Jewish life. Because they look at the world and they're like, Jerusalem is the middle of everything. That's what we have to focus on. And now God, his presence, travels with the Ark to Jerusalem. So the chronicler says, God is here. He is with us. And then David praises God for the Ark and the Ark being at Jerusalem. And then after that, we end up with this chapter in 1 Chronicles 14. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Beliadad, and Eliphelet. David took more wives for himself, and then he had these as his sons. 
And that's the closest the chronicler is going to get to talking about Bathsheba. That, that's it, because he's not going to focus on what happened with Bathsheba in between David. The chronicler is going to focus on writing a story worth telling. He's not going to get hung up on whether or not that man had sexual relations with that woman. But I did live through the 90s, and I do remember how the news treated President Clinton at that time, and how my parents treated President Clinton at the time. And the other leaders in my life were so excited about getting Clinton out. They were sure that he had to go. And so then I was changed as a young man, like, he's got to go. I was fired up. But the chronicler doesn't do that. That's not the story he wants to tell in the lives of the Israelites as they go back. They're not going to get hung up on someone's downfall. But fortunately, we didn't have social media in the 90s, but today we do, and we get to live out what we think as a Stormy Daniels investigation isn't over. And so we get to look in our lives and say to ourselves, are we going to say this, or if we can't say anything nice, are we going to follow Thumper's advice and say nothing at all? But politics were last week, and this week we're talking about David. And so the chronicler continues, and he continues with talking about how David defeats the Philistines. And then the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem in a tent because God is with them. And then the chronicler tells us again of David defeating his enemies. He defeats the Philistines and the Ammonites. And then the chronicler gives us this in 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. Satan did what? There's no way that Satan could do that to David. This has to be a mistake. Like in 2 Samuel, it's going to say this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So was it God, or was it Satan? Because if you're living at the time of Samuel, then you're living at the time when it was written. And when it was written, the Israelites were afraid. They needed their warrior king to be able to fight a war and to be confident in fighting that war. So he's going to perform a census because census is a number of people you have, which gives you the number of fighting men you have, how many people do you have to go fight for you, and the number of people you can tax. How much money can you collect to pay for the fighting that you're going to have to go do to protect the people? And when you're in the middle of it, you're afraid, and you want your king to be able to protect you. You want your king to have the money to fight. You want your king to have the people to be able to fight with. But the chronicler has been Babylon. He knows the story that comes from this. He knows how it goes for Babylon to keep being focused on money and power and census and being able to go through all that. And he says, no, there's no way God inspired that. And so he's trying to tell a different story. He's trying to serve something different to us today and to the Israelites then. He's trying to serve a story worth telling, not a story that gets hung up on the wrong things. 
So the chronicler continues as David prepares to build the temple, but God shows up and says, no, your son's going to build that. So David does the next best thing. He organizes the Levites to work in the temple. And we hear about organizing the priests to make sacrifices in the temple and the musicians to play music in the temple and the guards to guard the temple and the treasurers because somebody has to finance the project and the other officials because it's a massive building project and you need a lot of officials to do the officiating. And then he organizes the rest of Israel because somebody has to do the work. He spends a lot of time trying to get everything organized and ready to build the temple. And then the chronicler shows us how David meets with Solomon and says, hey, Solomon, this is what you need to do. You need to build the temple, because apparently it's important, and you need to worship God above all else. Then David prays, makes some sacrifices, because he's going to worship God still, and then he dies. And now Solomon's king. He prays for wisdom, he builds the temple, he gains wealth, and builds the temple some more, and some more, and we hear some more about building the temple. And then the ark comes from just being in Jerusalem to being inside the temple. So now at the center of their lives is the ark. God is with them at the temple where they worship, at the center of their lives in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's the center of their lives. The chronicler's trying to say something, and he's trying to remind them where God belongs. And as the chronicler continues, Solomon prays over the people. Solomon sets up a massive sacrifice. There's all these rams and bulls everywhere because Solomon wants to do a nice, big, awesome job of opening the doors to the temple. So he opens the doors, and in order for God to say, I'm with you, this is all good, he drops a massive fireball and consumes the entire sacrifice, which would have to be really cool to see. I would love to just be able to watch the video of that a few hundred times just because that would be funny and awesome to see God move with this massive fireball. But the chronicler continues after that, and so does Solomon. We hear some more about Solomon's accomplishments. Eventually, the queen of Sheba stops by, who is like a massive foreign dignitary or really famous celebrity, you, you take your pick, stopping by to say hey and to see Solomon's wealth. And then eventually Solomon dies, which means probably didn't finish very well if you're ending with Solomon's wealth. And then we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I like to call them the Boam boys. The sons of Solomon. These two guys take Israel and perform the first church split and the chronicler decides to go ahead and follow Rehoboam, who leads in the south of Judah. And Rehoboam's kind of on and off with God, but at the end, he humbles himself and things are good. And so the king after Rehoboam uh, does what is right in the eyes of God, and he has an army of 400,000, and he defeats an army of 800,000. I like those odds. And then there's the next king who has an army of 580,000, and defeats an army of 1.3 million because we don't rely on a census and power and military that we know. We rely on God. And then after that, there's a king who gets into this bad treaty that he really should have been mixed up in, and it goes well for him because he does what is right in the eyes of God, and God protects him in the midst of that treaty. 
But unfortunately, there are some kings who didn't do what was right in the eyes of God. And we get little paragraphs about them. Thing kind of glosses over them, really. But we get their stories nonetheless. And eventually, we get to a king who does what is right in the eyes of God. This guy does things like destroy the idols, appoint Levites, appoint priests, appoint temple guards, follows the law of Moses. Boy, I wonder if we've kind of heard this story before. But then we, the he doesn't finish strong, and there's kind of a speed round of some kings who started out doing all right but didn't finish well, and then some other kings who just didn't do anything right at all. And eventually we get to Hezekiah, because Hezekiah has a story to tell, and things slow way down with the chronicler, because Hezekiah cleanses and restores the temple, celebrates Passover, organizes the priests and the Levites because the priests perform the sacrifices at the temple and the Levites work at the temple and we, wouldn't, we would always want to keep the doors of the place of worship open because that, that's the center of our lives. And as Hezekiah is doing all of this, the chronicler closes or reaches a midpoint in Hezekiah's story at 2 Chronicles 31. He says this, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah And he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So things went well for him, which means we would continue to see things going well for him. But next thing we know, king of Assyria is showing up and besieging the entire city of Jerusalem which doesn't really seem like what you would do if things were going well and they were just always going to go well. But because God's God and he does, is there for his people, even in their hardest moments, he sends one angel and the entire nation of Assyria goes home with their tail between their legs. But after Hezekiah, he kind of gets caught up in his own possessions and things don't end very well. But the next king did not do what was right in the eyes of God, and half of Israel is carted off to Babylon. But then we get a king who did do what was right, and they find the book of the law, which it's not good that the book of the law was lost, but at least now they found it, and they can follow it, and they do. And he appoints Levites. He appoints priests, because someone needs to work in the temple. But eventually there was another king who did evil on the side of the Lord, and the rest of Israel is carted off to Babylon and Jerusalem's burned to the ground. Now the chronicler is at a period where all of Israel is in Babylon, and that's not a good thing, but they all lived through it, so why would he retell them that story? So he glosses over a bunch of stuff and just kind of gets right to the point and ends 2 Chronicles 36 with this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so Cyrus, king of Persia, He's a Gentile who's the king of Persia, and Persia just conquered Babylon, where the Israelites have been all this time. And he comes in, and this is what he does after he takes over Babylon. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the spirit of a Gentile king of Persia. Interesting. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So God inspires Cyrus to not only take this massive group of Israelites and not use them for a labor force, but instead send them home and pay for their airfare, as well as pays for their city, their holy city of Jerusalem, to be rebuilt and to rebuild the temple so that they can worship God. And that's the end of the book of Second Chronicles. So as they're wrapping up, as they're on their way home, this is what the chronicler leaves them with. This is what he gives them as they go home. Hey, God used a completely unexpected source to send us home so that we can tell a better story and we can put our world back together. Despite the fact that the chronicler's input, the things he ate, what he was taking in, was Samuel and Kings mixed in with the Babylonian influence of power and taxes and money and empire and military. He still decided that what he was going to serve the people as they went home was something worth reading, something that prepared them to make a difference when they got home, something that prepared them to build God's empire, not their own empire. In the same way, what are we taking in? with Facebook, Twitter, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, YouTube, Netflix, and HBO, and the entire internet being at our fingertips, what are we taking in? What is on your plate? What is in your diet that you are taking in? And do you know the difference between the story God's trying to tell in the world in order to call that out and the story that everybody else is trying to tell? because there's a lot of stories we can listen to and there's a lot of different options. And just like the Chronicler, we have the opportunity to either take them in or don't. And we have to make that decision for ourselves. But fortunately, whenever I talk to people about this, I always kind of get the same idea that there's one last bastion of hope. We have one last place we can go. It's always good. It's Instagram. Instagram has no bad days. I don't know if you've noticed. Instagram has every day at the beach. Every day is a day on vacation. Every day I'm with my friends. Every day has the best, most delicious food. Every day has all the good things I want. And I get to see that through my little phone while I sit at home, the same home I've always been in, with the same car I've always had, and I'm not at the beach, and I'm not on vacation, and I haven't gotten new shoes lately, and everything's kind of the same, same old, same old. The house isn't fixing itself. And I get to see that through the phone, and I get to compare myself and try and say, I don't have that. Why don't I get to have that? Why don't I get to make that difference? And it slowly eats away at me until I'm getting so spun up and trying to keep up that I don't remember what's actually important. I don't remember the story that I'm trying to tell. But we don't just get to cut ourselves off. Because even though you might go get on MSNBC and Kim Kardashian is news, unfortunately, the single mom who had her groceries paid for by a stranger isn't. And according to Fox News, Jerry Seinfeld's opinion on Roseanne Barr is news. 
the family that worked themselves out of debt, got their power turned back on, and is finally changing their legacy for the better, for somehow doesn't make the headline news. And it seems like every day I open Facebook and the story about the dad who finally made it to his daughter's soccer game isn't the top of the news feed. Even though he overcame a lot of different stuff to get there, he's still stuck on, we're still stuck on something else, some other sensational piece of something. Because all of these things make their money the same way. Views and time viewed. So if you go look at, watch a video, they will assume that you liked that video and they'll give you more, more videos like that. So the number of views, the advertisers pay for views. And the longer you look means you took in more of the information. And by information, they mean the ads on the sides. And so the more of those ads you see, the more money they pay. And so they constantly just make this news more and more sensational. So if you go watch a video about fluffy bunnies, then the next video is going to be an even fluffier bunny. And the video after that's going to be fluffier and fluffier and fluffier and fluffier until you're watching the most fluffiest bunny that's ever lived. And on the other side, if you go read that article of, that agrees with your political opinion, that kind of gets you a little fired up, then the next article that they serve up gets you a little bit more fired up, and then the next article is a little bit more sensational, you get more fired up and more fired up and more fired up until your hair's on fire and you're screaming at the top of your lungs and you're not sure why, but you just read an article that you're pretty sure said you should be screaming at the top of your lungs right now. What are you taking in? But the reality is, is we have to question what we're taking in, or we can't be questioning whether or not we should take it in. Because as soon as we cut ourselves off, we have no voice at all. The chronicler had to know about the current events going on at the time so that he could relate them back to what he was writing to the Israelites as they went home. In the same way, we have to know what's going on. Otherwise, we're completely lost and our voice loses value because it's not calling out the good in the world. It's not taking the time to call out the stories of God putting the world back together. It's just calling, it's not saying anything. So we do have to find the right filter of bringing things in, not just cut ourselves off. And right now we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And we have an open table for anyone who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. As the buckets and the trays go by, please hold the elements and we'll hold, eat them together. Meanwhile, we're going to take a few minutes and look at some questions. Uh, the first question we're going to look at is, what are you taking in? What's in your diet? What are you bringing into your life? Because the chronicler had all sorts of input. He had the input from God's word. He had the input from Samuel and King specifically. And he also had Babylon with their money, with their power, with the greed, the military, their dominance. He had some very similar inputs that we have. What are you taking in? Do you know what you're taking in? And is it actually that different from a high schooler sitting on their iPad, on Facebook or YouTube watching a Minecraft video? Because you're leaving the TV turned on, and on that TV is your media. 
and they're sitting there with the iPad. What's the difference between them two? What story does the one on the TV tell? Is it actually that different than the iPad? Because the Chronicler took the time to tell a different story of people who joined God and what he was doing. And that's what he spent his time talking about. The second thing we'll look at as we kind of explore what, what media we're taking in is, is how is the media shaping you? Much like what you bring in shapes you, if you're healthy or unhealthy or whatever, what you take in outside of your food also is important because it shapes the way you see yourself. Do you see yourself and your story starting in the garden like the chronicler did with Adam who was there on the sixth day when God said, you are very good? Does your story start there? Does your story start with you viewing yourself and others in a way that says, God's putting the world back together and this is how we do it? Because the chronicler took the time to talk about the ark because God was with them. He took the time to talk about the temple because that is the space they made in their lives to worship God. And he took time to talk about the festivals and the law because that's how they followed God and that's how he showed people that were putting the world back together. The next implication is what does your social media say about you, about others? What does it say? The Chronicler wrote Chronicles. And he spent all this time talking about the things of God and the things about putting the world back together, rebuilding their world. He took the time to give instructions to people on how to rebuild their world. Does your social media feed talk about God putting the world back together? Is someone going to go find your story of putting the world back together? Your ideas on how to put the world back together in the same way that God did? Is it going to tell a story about how you view yourself as very good? Is it going to tell a story about how you view your neighbor as very good? Or is it going to tell the story of how God sees the world as very good? What is it going to say? And is it going to spend time telling the right story? Or is it going to get hung up on the stories that the chronicler glossed over? Because every time the chronicler ran into a king that did evil in the sight of the Lord, he gave us these little paragraphs. They're pretty quick. But the stories about the kings who did right in the eyes of God were big stories. Those were the long stories. Those were the stories where he broke down the elements of being a part of God's kingdom and putting the world back together. What is your social media going to say? And if you need an example of somebody who's trying to tell a story of God putting the world back together, there's this guy who graduated high school right here in Pullman, Washington. Now he and his wife live in Nashville and he has this newspaper, 21st century. He started a newspaper. And the newspaper's at goodgoodgood.co. And every quarter the newspaper goes out, every week the newsletter goes out in my email inbox. 
And it's a story of good people, of God working in the world, where good stories are being told. It is good news that he sends me. And it's a newsletter you can go sign up. The website's right there in your sermon notes. But he's trying to tell a story about putting the world back together just like we are. And the last implication is this. What story are you leaving for your children to read? At the end of the day, the Chronicler wrote on parchment and scrolls, paper. And today, all these years later, we're still reading it. We get to write in bits and bytes in this digital world, and it doesn't go away either. We think we hit delete, but I feel as if we've been able to see enough through news that it actually doesn't go away. And so the story that I write today, my son, who's only a year and a half, is going to read it one day. And I'm going to have to look at him and be able to give him advice and instructions on how to put the world back together, on what I think he can do to put the world back together. And he's going to look at what I've written and put out in the world and he's going to have to make a decision on whether or not those are actually good instructions. Because are they good instructions? Do they actually tell the story of how to put the world back together? Or am I so caught up in this quick event or that event or this sensational news that I totally missed what God was doing? Fortunately, we do have Jesus who left us a story about how he made a way for us to put the world back together. And in his story at the Last Supper, he took the bread and he broke it saying, take, eat, this is my body. Let's eat together. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, drink of it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Lord God, today you've given us this invitation and this opportunity to join you as you continue to put the world back together. And you've given us this chance to tell your story. You've given us this chance to show others around us what it is that you're doing and how you would put the world back together. We thank you for that opportunity. We ask that you would remind us and help us stay focused on you and telling your story as we leave today. We'd ask that you would continue to work on our hearts as we sing this next song and that we would just be constantly reflecting on how it is that you're working and put that first. In your son's name we pray, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.